Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike, and I'm glad to try to share the Word of God as we contemplate and try to figure out what's going on in that story. Uh, Before I pray, I just wanted to read from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. We're in a Stories for Faith sermon series, which is basically looking at Hebrews 11, all these various characters and how they had faith. And that story about Abraham and Isaac is mentioned here, so I want to read it before we pray and then jump into uh, that story. So Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring will be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we thank you that... You've given to us a story that we can connect with, resonate with, remember. And I pray that the stories of Scripture that point to the story of Scripture would shape our hearts. We'd be changed as we hear these things, and our faith would come alive and grow through these stories. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is one of the Uh, most famous stories in the Bible, I think for obvious reasons. It's about sacrifice, kind of like the ultimate sacrifice, and it's like it kind of grabs your attention that God would ask Abraham to offer as a sacrifice his one and only son. And so stories like these, as I just prayed, do have power to speak to us and shape our lives, and that's certainly what I hope this morning as you consider this. It seems, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but it's a little bit strange that God would ask him to do this, but think about the big themes here of of sacrifice and your life really counting for something. It's like, you don't have to raise your hand, but it's like, who wants your life to count for something? It's like, well, yeah, all of us do. And so stories like this resonate and they speak to us in ways in our hearts that uh, sometimes just regular, quote-unquote, teaching cannot do. And so this morning, I'm, I'm hopeful that this story about sacrifice will do that. But even more than that, the only reason that this story is about sacrifice is because ultimately this story is about love. And so you could say, I guess it's a love story. But anytime you say the phrase love story in America, everyone always immediately thinks like romance, marriage, and all that. And I I do want to be quick to add, we do know there's other kinds of love in the world, right? (laughs) Okay? And here, we're going to see a really clear, beautiful, you could almost say pure picture of a father's love for his beloved, obedient, willing son. And that's where all the sacrifice comes in. It's because Abraham has this one and only son, and it's because that he loves him so much and he was so long in coming and because as we'll see that Isaac was so willing and trustworthy and obedient as a son, it's because of all of that love that the sacrifice feels so sharp. And so we're going to see in this story then, like what is the Lord doing in this test and then how is that speaking to us? And so let's dive into the story then. All right, so I've Not me, I mean, it's basically pretty obvious. There's three really clear sections in the story. One is when God comes and and asks Abraham to do this. That's called the test, so it's a test of faith. All right. The second thing that we see is Abraham's deliberate response to that. 
his faithful response to the test. And then finally, the third thing, which again, is just right there from the passage, is how the Lord rewards Abraham's faith. And so that's how we're going to look at these three sections. And then after that, we'll make a couple of applications at the end. All right, so the test. So one of the, as I just mentioned, it, it feels strange to us, maybe like bordering like on crazy slash insane, that God would ask Abraham the friend of God, he's called in uh, Genesis 18, to sacrifice his one and only son. And that feels very strange to us, and in some sense it definitely should feel strange to us. But when you see Abraham's response, he just kind of gets right to it. So what was, the, what was the framework that Abraham had in his heart and his mind that enabled him to actually follow through with this and not immediately go, I must have eaten some bad lamb last night and had this crazy dream that I was supposed to sacrifice my son. Like, what was the spiritual, emotional framework that he had? Because I think there's some things that we can learn about how we should be viewing God as well. And so, the first thing I would say is that definitely Abraham knew God and God's will and God's ways. This is late now in Abraham's life. He's well over a hundred years old, and he has been walking with God for decades. So we can't act as if he doesn't really know the Lord. Well, what does he know about the Lord? Well, he knows that God is holy. The word holy means that he's transcendent. He's otherly. It means that there's no one like him. Which means, and, and not in the weird way. <laughs> you know, how, well, there's no one like that person. No, not in the weird no one like him, like the majestic, glorious way. So there's no one like God. And so therefore, it stands to reason, reason logically that God could ask things of Abraham or us that no one else could ask of us. Is that, that's logical, right? And so... What I, that feels a little bit like God feels distant and like, like out there. And what's interesting about this story actually is that's actually the name that the author here uses. He uses the name God, which is the name Elohim, which means like majestic and transcendent. The personal name of God, which we'll see by the end of the story, is Jehovah. That's the personal covenant promise keeping. But it's like God, the Elohim, the, the transcendent, holy other God, comes to Abraham and says, I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. And I can do that because I'm Elohim, I'm God, I'm holy. And so Abraham knows that, that that's who God is. And again, that, that's good for us because... You know, a lot of God is very near and He's very imminent, and He, you know, we sang about peace and all of those things, but that is not in, con, uh, in distinction to the fact that God is holy. We should never get that twisted, that that's who He is. He's great. You know, uh, my wife and I are participating in a group on Sunday nights, and we're going through a study on the attributes of God. And the first one we did last week was called the Aseity of God. A little heady, okay? <laughs> Don't use that term much. It just basically means self sufficient. It means that God has life within himself. That's who, and so you haven't met anyone like that. Every person you've ever met, 
got their life from someone else, and eventually that goes all the way back to God, who is the source of all life. So even again, logically, and, and like what's the apparatus in, in Abraham's heart and mind that would enable him to actually even attempt to follow through with this um, test, which he doesn't know is a test, but this command, is that he knows that actually Isaac's life comes from God. Who owns Isaac? Abraham or the Lord? The Lord. And so again, that type of preaching right there can make us kind of be like, whoa, 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 like this with God. And that's not all bad. That's who God is. He's holy. He's not like anyone else you've met. And yet, Abraham knows something else about God simultaneously. And you never get one of these without the other. Abraham knows that God is gracious and faithful to his promises. He knows that equally as much as he knows that God is holy and transcendent. And he's look, he can look back over the course of his life and see that God had made promises to him decades ago that over the course of time, God faithfully, graciously kept his promises to Abraham. And so Abraham has this framework of God in his mind that, yes, I owe everything to God, including Isaac, upon whom, by the way, all the promises and blessings of God rest on Isaac. So it's like the command to sacrifice him is like, it's almost like the command of God is against the promises of God. But Abraham knows, yeah, my whole life belongs to the Lord. Sometimes I wonder in the American church, like, we're all about the graciousness of God, but do we know that God owns our lives? And simultaneously, he is gracious and faithful. And actually, what's interesting about this idea of offering the firstborn as a sacrifice is it's actually something that later on in the law that God, in a sense, requires of the whole nation. Look at, look at uh, Exodus 13 here. Every firstborn of man... Among your sons, you shall redeem. This is important context because this is where God is going to rescue Israel from Egypt and the firstborn of Egypt is going to be saved because of the blood on the door. Remember that story? So basically God is saying this, the the firstborn son belongs to me and every family in Israel is going to know that because when you gave birth to your firstborn son, you would take him to the tabernacle or to the temple and you would offer a sacrifice recognizing that all the hopes and dreams and perpetuity of our family rests on this child and we recognize God that he belongs to you and that everything that we have belongs to you but you're gracious and so instead of giving our son you allow us to redeem him with a sacrifice or an offering. And so you see the holiness of God, the graciousness of God together. And here at New City we can't get it twisted. We need to worship Jesus, worship God our Father as holy and as gracious. And so this test, in a sense, makes sense, at least to some degree, to Abraham because he knows God is holy and he knows God as gracious. And yet, that doesn't make it any, I mean, it's not like, oh, this is a piece of cake. (laughs) No. But Abraham has this framework for God. He knows enough about God's character to start the journey. But it starts, you know, this test starts with, you know, kind of a belabored, deliberate nature. And again, if if we read through it there, like, God says, what's interesting also, I'll say this, God does say please here. Which is one of the few times in all of the Bible, there's a Hebrew word for please. Please take your son. So that's interesting. It says, take your son, your only son, 
the one you love, Isaac. It's almost like the Lord is like putting salt in the wound. Like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I know which one you're talking about. Take that son, that beloved son. Offer him as a burnt offering. Go to the mountains where I'm going to tell you. This test, in a sense, parallels or mirrors the original test way back in chapter 12 when God came to Abraham and says, I want you to leave your country and your father's house and the homeland that you know. He kind of triples up what's familiar to him, and it's almost like God is saying, Abraham, I want you to trust me. I'm going to send you to a place where I'm going to show you, and I want you to let go of your past. Now, decades later, he comes to him again and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one you love. He triples it up again, and then he says, and now I want you to give me your future because you don't know how this is going to go. And so this is the test that Abraham would offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord, and it's very poignant. And as I said in the introduction, it's because of the preciousness of the promise and the preciousness of the relationship between Abraham and Isaac that makes the test so difficult. One more thing about the test before we move on to Abraham's obedience. And that is, what was the test all about? Why test him anyway? In one sense, hasn't Abraham already proven that he believes, that he's a man of faith? And this final, and I would say probably culminating test of Abraham's journey with God was given to him so that Abraham would know, I mean, God obviously knows all things, Abraham would know that it was never just about Isaac. It was never just about God's good gifts. Like, had, had, had uh, Abraham been faithful for all those years and decades just so that he could get Isaac, and then now once he's got Isaac, it's like the Lord is in the rearview mirror? Or has it always been? and should always be about the Lord as his reward. In fact, that's what Genesis chapter 15, the Lord comes in when he's making promises to Abraham. This would have been decades ago. He tells Abraham, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward is very great. The Lord's saying, I'm your reward. It's not about Isaac or the land or all those other blessings. It's about me. And so now here Abraham is, you know, there's, there's definitely a word here for the mature followers of Jesus among us. Amen? You think you're just like done with all the stuff and you're just coasting. No. Abraham's greatest test was reserved for when he was the oldest. And the Lord wanted to, in a sense, bring him through this test to show him and posterity and even down to us today that it's not about God's good gifts, but it's about God himself. And so that's the test. That's why he's doing it, and that's what it was. Now let's look at Abraham's obedience, uh, his faithful response to this, faithfulness in the test. It's deliberate, but the author here draws it out. It says he rose up early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and then he cut the wood for the burnt offering. It's like, do we need to know any of that? <laughs> no. We don't. And in fact, as you study like Hebrew narratives and how they do things, the fact that he goes through that list there is kind of like shouting in a Hebrew narrative kind of way, which I know we're not all super familiar with that, but he's shouting that the deliberate, 
difficulty that Abraham has to go through to get up to the mountains. Of course he saddled his donkey, okay? Of course he brought the wood, you know? Of course he brought Isaac. All of those things are there so that you can kind of like join with Abraham right now, and his heart is just like so filled with tension and agony, you can kind of feel it as Abraham goes through the necessary chores to get everything ready together for the journey. And to me, something that I think is hilarious is he brings two servants, and they literally do nothing (laughs) in the whole story. They're just like, there. But he, he names that they brought him along. And so we see here this deliberate obedience by Abraham. And they finally got all their stuff together and they head out early in the morning. And it's like a three days journey. And then on verse four, it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So again, feel the tension. You've gotten all the stuff together. You've traveled a day. You've traveled the next day. You've traveled the third day. You're waiting for the Lord to reveal the place. And then boom, you finally see the place. Or a movie, it would pan, (laughs) all the cool music would come. (laughs) There it is. It's like, are we really doing this? Are we really, am I really going to be offering Isaac? And you can almost feel it in his body as he he lifts up his eyes and he actually sees the place. Okay, that's the place. This is where it's going to go down. And then Abraham says in verse 5, so you know, this is all the, the, his, his faithfulness. He's faithfully obeying. He's got to the place. He tells the young men to stay. Again, they have no part in the story. They leave the donkey there. And then Abraham makes this statement that, that seems to have faith behind it, where me, and it says the boy in the SV, I think, but it's the same word used for Ishmael a few chapters earlier. He's like a young man. Okay? Well, he, and he's obviously strong enough, as we'll see in just a second, to take all of the wood for the altar and carry it on his back and go up a difficult hike up a mountain. So, I mean, this, this kid is, you know, he's not like six, okay? He's, you know, 13, 14, 15, whatever he is. And so they start this trek up. Abraham gives him the wood. He puts it on his back. They're walking up there. Abraham has the knife and the fire-starting kit. <laughs> and they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. For the second time, Abraham says, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Kids are smart. (laughs) This is not the first burnt offering that Abraham has offered in the presence of Isaac. This would be like going to church. This is not how we normally go to church, dad. Where's the lamb? (laughs) And one commentator said that this is the greatest work of holy evasion that a father ever gave. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, and then listen to it again, my son. Ten times, son, my son, son, my son. Five times, Father, my Father. The poignancy of it. And so here is Abraham walking. The first statement of faith is that, you know, we're going to go and we're going to come back together. Okay, that was like Abraham's believing. You can almost feel him fighting for faith. 
And then his son asks him that question, and you can feel him fighting for faith again that God will provide. And again, probably that's why I shared the Exodus verse with you about how that the Lord will, uh, requires the firstborn sacrifice. Abraham probably has something in his mind that, yes, I, I'm supposed to give my firstborn, but the Lord allows him to be redeemed, so maybe between now and there, God will intervene and provide a lamb. So it's a statement of faith by Abraham. It's this deliberate it's hard, it's agonizing, it's almost like every step is agonizing, you can feel that in the way it's written, but you can hear Abraham's faith in the whole process. So he gets to the top, they build, again, this is like a slow, deliberate thing, Abraham built the altar, nice and slow, <laughs> laid the wood in order, bound Isaac, his son, which again, just by way of contrast, just so you know what's happening up there on that mountain, it is very easy for Isaac at that time to be like, yo, old man, no lamb, I'm out. Abraham can't catch him, and you know, if it came to fists, fisticuffs, my money's on Isaac. Okay? So Isaac here is portrayed as the willing, full of faith, obedient son who allows himself to be tied and bound and then literally helped up and placed onto the wood. And again, the author, every single one of those motions is laid out step by step, and you just feel the agonizing thing. And then Abraham finally takes the knife to, to slaughter his son, he raises it up, and then the angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham! And you can just, I, I would imagine, this is pure speculation, he, I think he probably just fell to the ground, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> that's not in the Hebrew, Okay. So the Lord, the angel of the Lord intervenes. He says, now I know you fear God. Now I know it's not always been just about Isaac or the land or all these other things. I know that you fear me. That word fear means not just like you're afraid of me, but it's like this ultimate reverence and respect. And it really is like almost it can be a synonymous of love, which I know may sound strange. But when you have the fear of the Lord, it means that you value and regard him above all else, which is love. God says to him, now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your one and only son. And then Abraham names the place, super cool name. It's called, Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, which is Jehovah Jireh. As I said, the test began with Elohim. And now the test ends with Jehovah, the personal covenant, promise-keeping God. This place right here is where the personal covenant-keeping God provides what he said he would provide. It's the place of seeing or provision. And then from that point on, it was called, this is the mount of the Lord where it will be provided. And so lastly, the last thing here before we do some application is the reward the reward of Abraham's obedience, his faith-filled obedience, is that all the promises that he had received throughout his whole lifetime are solidified and expanded. Stars and seashore. Now there's going to be an heir, apparently one of Abraham's heir, it says is going to possess the gate of all of his enemies. It means that all of these promises are going to be challenged at certain points throughout salvation history, but one is going to come who's going to conquer all of the threats to the promises, and God says, I'm swearing by myself that I'm going to do this and bless you forever because you have obeyed. 
And so this is like Hebrews 11. We've talked, you know, this series about Hebrews 11, that you must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And it's, you can feel and see Abraham fighting for faith up that mountain and to offer his son, believing that God would reward his faith, and indeed God does reward his faith. His faith is against all odds, and God rewards him for it. So that's the story. We see the test. We see the faithfulness of Abraham, and then we see the reward. Now, I have three things I want to conclude with in terms of trying to help us interpret and apply this. Number one, we need to see that this story is actually a type. Everyone say type. A type, it was like a mold that you would make, and then you would pour stuff into the mold. This story is like a mold that prepares us for the bigger story of Jesus, Jesus says that three or four times that he says, when you read and interpret the Old Testament, you should see that it points to me. It's like a form that fits, and I fit right into it. And so this story about a father's love for his son and a son's love for his father, Abraham and Isaac, is actually a pointer to the love of God the Father that he has for his son and his son for God the Father. So it's really, at first, not even about us. It's like, let's get out of the way and let's just see a beautiful thing here about how God the Father loves God the Son. Listen to this, these, these ways that they parallel each other. Jesus was the long-awaited, like Isaac, miraculously conceived, like Isaac, firstborn son of his mother, like Isaac, heir and descendant of Abraham, upon whom all the blessings and promises rested. That was Isaac, and that is Jesus. Jesus was the willingly obedient, beloved, one and only Son of God the Father who walked up the hill willingly again to the place of sacrifice, allowing himself to be bound. Before taking that walk up the hill, he met with his father in the garden and was like, Is this the plan? (laughs) Is there any other way, Father? Just like Isaac said, where's the lamb? And the Lord will provide, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus carried the wood for his sacrifice on his back and surrendered his life to the will of the Father. Now here's one massive difference. Unlike Isaac, Jesus was not delivered from the edge of the knife. He was not delivered from death. His cries to his father went unheard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is where Jesus is true and better Isaac. Isaac's sacrifice really couldn't pay for any of the sins, which is why God allowed a substitute. But here's the perfectly righteous and obedient son of God who didn't kind of get close to death, but actually died for the sins of the world. He's a true and better Isaac. And by the way, the mountains of Moriah, where they offered that sacrifice, later became the hills of Jerusalem. It's crazy. The typology, the form that was set, getting us ready. This story is about God the Father and Jesus the Son. Isaac did foreshadow Jesus in one more significant way. 
he foreshadowed him in that, as I read in Hebrews 11, it says that Isaac was raised to life, figuratively speaking. Remember that from uh, Hebrews 11? And interestingly, what day was it when Abraham received Isaac back alive from the dead? You tell me, what day was it? Third day, come on. Do you know the story? What day was Jesus raised on? Come on now. I know it's lunchtime, but hello. That's amazing. Getting us ready for the third day. When, and then you want to talk about the, where the mount of the Lord, where provision is made. That is, a, that is a precursor to Calvary. You want to know where God's provision is seen and clearly poured out on you and me. It's the mount of Calvary. And three days later, he rises from the dead, assuring now, as the New Testament says, that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah Jireh. And finally, toward the end of that story, you might, if you're paying attention, it, it could smack a little bit like, of, like you earn your way to God's favor. Abraham obeyed, and so therefore God blessed him. Does that sound like he earned it? It definitely sounds like, you can say yes, <laughs> it definitely sounds like he earned it. Abraham's obedience there, again, was a type. It was preparing us. Abraham's obedience wasn't good enough. He lied about his wife. He went with Hagar. Abraham was not perfect and neither was Isaac. That story is preparing us for a true and better Abraham, a true and better Isaac, namely Jesus, whose perfect obedience, God looks at Jesus' perfect obedience, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead and goes, I'm going to bless you, Jesus, forever, and everybody who's connected to Jesus gets all the blessing too. And so it prepares us for the obedience and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. And so this story, friends, what, what needs to happen when we look at this story is we need to see, and, it, and that's why the author highlights it the way he does, the love for Abraham for Isaac and Isaac for Abraham and just what it was doing, how it was literally tearing Abraham's heart apart to do this. Why is that important? Because what God the Father and God the Son did on that mountain on, in that day was literally tearing God the Father's heart apart and he did it because he literally loves you. Do you believe it? That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And the giving of that son is, a, is an echo, is an homage to Abraham and Isaac. And what does that feel like when the father hears the son, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father holds and doesn't send the angels and doesn't come to rescue so that salvation and provision can actually happen. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this story. God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, Now I know that you love me, because you did not withhold your only son from me. But how much more can we look at his sacrifice on the cross and say, Now we know that you love us. For you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love, from us. When the magnitude of what he did dawns on us, it makes it possible finally to rest our hearts in him rather than in anything else. I think that we really, really struggle with Abraham-type stuff where we look at the blessings of God and whether we have them or not, and we gauge whether or not God loves us based on whether we have those blessings. 
and how long they last and are they better than other people's and all that mess. When we're supposed to be looking, what's the greatest thing that God could give us? His most precious son, and you look at Calvary in the tomb and you say, I know God loves me. When that dawns on you, and it can take, again, how old was Abraham? Some of you might be tempted to think, well, yeah, I've heard that before. But you still, again, with all due respect and kindness, you still don't have it. In fact, Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would open your heart so that you could actually receive it. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, necessarily. I'm saying that it hasn't so permeated your being that you could be like Abraham and offer your dearest. And that's the next point of application. You can offer your Isaacs when you know the true and better Abraham and Isaac, right? What's going to give you the kind of sense of freedom and, and that kind of inner workings? Of, that's how I spent all that time with Abraham. The inner workings of Abraham's heart to really know that God was entitled to all that, that Abraham owned, but also to know that God was truly for Abraham. That inner framework gives you the freedom to offer your Isaac. What's the dearest, most precious thing to you right now? And do you trust the Lord with it completely? Jesus said, if you want to follow me, that you should leave your father, your mother, your wife, your own, your, your, hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your own life also. He's not saying actually hate them. He's, of course, saying, like Isaac, in this test, do you love Jesus more than anyone or anything else? And why would you want to love Jesus more than anyone or anything else? You would only do that when you first see the immense love that he has for you. We love him because he first loved us. That's the mechanics of grace. But I do believe, to encourage and challenge us here at New City, I do believe that some of us don't even recognize that we have Isaacs, and then I definitely think that some of us are wrestling with offering them up. And I just want to encourage you, trust the Lord. You will find a freedom and a breakthrough when you give what's dearest to you, most dearest to you, to the Lord, you can trust him. Look at Calvary. You can trust him. I mean, I'm not just saying this stuff. I mean, this is how we talk in our house. I mean, you know, I'm working through this in my own family, with my own girls, and there's certain things that are coming up, things that they've worked for for a very long time, and they were working through it, and it was like, it came to a decision where it's like, I know this is what God's leading me to do, but it's going to jeopardize this other thing over here that's really important to me, and I've got to figure it out. I've got to, like, I've got to, like, give this thing that I've been working for for a long time to the Lord, even though she's young, and trust him. That's hard. But if you keep looking at Jesus, you'll have the freedom to do that. And then you will find in your relationship with God that is so deep and strong, and then you share in all those rewards, it's worth it. So how do we apply it? First, you receive the love of the true and better Abraham and Isaac. Second, you are willing to offer your Isaacs to the Lord. And then lastly, because offering your Isaacs can be a little bit dramatic, okay? This certainly was a dramatic thing. And it's not like God was asking Abraham to offer Isaac like every week, okay? That was kind of like, you know, once in a lifetime situation. And there's definitely in your journey of faith with the Lord, there's going to be those moments that are like, boom. And I can look back in mind and say, okay, I remember that. That was an Isaac moment. Okay, that was definitely an Isaac moment. And there's times where you're, you have a couple of those in your journey. But along the way, 
we should not neglect the fact that there's these little daily surrenders as well. And so in uh, Romans chapter 12, a living sacrifice, we daily surrender. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so, you know, my father quoted Jesus to me all the time, if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. Here's, here's how you prepare for the Isaac moments. The daily surrender of not my will, but your will be done. You pray the Lord's Prayer. I would encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. I mean, he did tell us to pray it, so you might as well pray it, okay? Where he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray with Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. I mean, the, it's, the, it's this Isaac being, being like Isaac, being willing to be bound and get on the altar, living sacrifice, and say, okay, God, just like Abraham said three times, here I am. I mean, what difference would that make in your workplace where you go there, surrender to Jesus, not pushing your own agenda or trying to get your own way or jockey for status, but you're just saying, Lord, here I am, your will be done, not mine. What difference would that make in your marriage, in your relationship with your kids, in your relationship with your neighbors, in relationship to your money, in relationship to your time? Lord, here I am. The daily surrender, this is how Paul says in union with Christ, he talks about union with Christ in this regard in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified, not my will. I get on the altar. Yet, surprisingly and amazingly, even though I'm crucified with him, I'm alive. And I live by faith in, this, in the Son of God who loves me. That same inner framework of Abraham. The holiness of God submitting to that and the gracious faithfulness of God. And so New City, if we're going to be people of faith who live in it, we need to see Jesus and the Father as the true and better Abraham and Isaac. We need to offer our Isaacs and then daily surrender our lives to him. Father, thank you for this story. It's powerful. It grabs our attention. And I pray that it would change our hearts. Thank you for your graciousness and your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.